It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Sam Grossman graduated from Northwestern with a degree in mathematics, preparing for a career as an actuary. He took a sharp turn in 2004, beginning his pursuit of a career in major league front offices. Following an internship with the Brewers, Grossman joined the Reds in 2007, and he's been in Cincinnati ever since. I had a chance to sit down with Grossman at the Red Spring facility in Goodyear, Arizona, before camps shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed the evolution of analytics during his career, the front office continuity in Cincinnati, the Reds' decision to dive into the free agent market last offseason, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Reds' Vice President and Assistant General Manager, Sam Grossman. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Sam, you grew up in North Carolina, not a big league market. Uh, was baseball always your your first love? Was there a team you you rooted for as a kid? Yeah, I, I always loved baseball. You know, my dad and grandpa played as well. And so we didn't have a favorite team. A lot of my family's from uh, up in the Richmond, Virginia area. So we'd probably go to Orioles games once every two years or something like that. Um, for some reason, probably because of baseball cards, I really just like the individual players. Um, I was a big Ricky Henderson fan. Um, so I was more players over having a favorite team, uh, you know, also, you know, such a big college sports area down there that there's, there were really no te- pro teams when I was growing up. Right. I find a lot of guys who grew up in the South ventured towards the Braves just because they were on TV a lot. But, um, you know, I guess maybe by then TBS wasn't quite as big of a thing as, as it was maybe 10 years earlier. It was there. We got TBS. I remember we randomly got like Mets games somehow through cable. Um, I think it was because we were right about in the middle of Baltimore and Atlanta. And because we had family up in Virginia, that was more the direction we went. Right. You played baseball in high school. That was the peak of your playing career. Uh, As a kid playing in high school, were there ever any thoughts of trying to play college ball or any dreams of of playing beyond high school? Yeah. The peak of my playing career was probably middle school, not (laughs) high school. But um, I did. I was on the high school teams. I was effectively Brian Roberts' backup. Um, so, you know, it was one of those where like I was fine when I was 
10, 11, 12. And then other kids kept getting bigger. And, you know, by the time I was like a junior and senior in high school, I kind of knew that wasn't my future. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just always, you know, I always played. I was always, you know, a decent little infielder, that type of scrappy little player. And then, um, you know, over time, I just was not athletic enough to do it. Being Brian Roberts's backup probably isn't a way to get much playing time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I was like effectively a utility guy both, both years I was on varsity. So I found my role. You uh, you graduated from Northwestern with a degree in mathematics. At the time, was a career in baseball even a thought in your head? Um, I think I had tried to think about it. Um, you know, coming out of school, there were, you know, it was just starting to have those ends. Um to figure out ways to do it. Um, I did a, a research project my senior year with uh, that involved streaks in sports and, and that sort of thing, um, but didn't really make any connections out of that. Um, and so I, I ended up getting a job, you know, just in the insurance industry for a couple of years um, and was trying to figure out how to do it, but really didn't have any direct ends at that point. Well, let's say you had a job as an actuary, mm-hmm. not something that most baseball executives have on their resume towards the bottom. What what made you ultimately decide to pursue a career in baseball? Uh, I don't know if I have a, a specific answer to that, but, um, you know, I think it was probably something where I had a, a pretty good job at the time and just didn't recognize it because I was young. And, um, you know, obviously hadn't really given up the uh, the thought about trying to get into baseball at that point. Um, what where I kind of developed a tiny little in was I think my my dad or somebody worked with someone that was affiliated with Inside Edge. And so I got in touch with them. Um, I also worked at uh, Stats Incorporated when I was in college. Um, and so I had a couple connections with those um, and nothing really came of those directly. But that's how I heard about the minor league baseball job fair at the winter meetings. And so that was, uh, you know, it was really just talking to people about ways to to meet people in the game. And um, that's when they were really doing great things with that. PBEO, the Professional Baseball Employment Organization. And so I kind of got into that side of it, um, going to the winter meetings a couple years in a row. The first time you went, I think, was Anaheim, uh, 2004? I believe I went to the New Orleans one, which okay. was, 03. I think, 03. Yeah. Yep. And so that one, you know, was purely, you just went, you brought a stack of paper resumes, you there were folders up on the wall with numbers of minor league jobs, and you just put your resumes into the ones and you had, it was great. You had these little 15 minute interviews um, over the course of the three days. It was amazingly efficient and you got to talk to so many people. Um, I think I had a little advantage because I was, I was finished with school. I was at least saying I was willing to do anything. And I had gotten some good advice from somebody not to try to take a ticket sales or a marketing internship. Um, so I was actually more focused on, on clubhouse roles um, to kind of be around the team a little bit more, which was some good, interesting advice I got along the way. Well, I'll give you the knowledge that you were not the most overwhelmed person at the 2003 winter meetings. <laughs> that was my first ever winter meetings covering the Yankees, and the Yankees didn't send anybody to the winter meetings that oh, year. Wow. Uh, George Steinbrenner was upset about the way things had gone with Roger Clemens and Andy Pettico in Houston, mm-hmm. and he pulled everybody's tickets. And I ah. showed up at the winter meetings for the first time on, as a beat writer with nobody from the club there. So I promise you, I was walking around there a lot more frazzled than you were That's at the amazing. job fair. Um, your first job was with the team of the New York Penn League, I think, right? That's right. Yep. I worked a summer uh, for the New Jersey Cardinals, who don't exist anymore. They're way up in the tip of New Jersey by Pennsylvania. Um, 
Yeah, and I, it was basically me and one other guy were the clubhouse managers for the year. And so we traded home in a way. We traded off road trips. So it was a, it, it was great. You know, I definitely wasn't, didn't know what to expect going into it. And it was, it was one of those where I knew I would see if I could, if I, how much I loved it or not, pretty much. I know talking to other people who have worked at low levels of the minors, mm -hmm. even high levels of the minors, you're sort of a jack of all trades. You do whatever you need to do. What were, what were some of your responsibilities there? Yeah. I mean, uh, running the clubhouse. So cleaning up at the end of nights, doing laundry, making PB and J's as you know, that's, that's changed over the years. Um, picking up players from the airport. Uh, they, uh, the funniest one there was uh, obviously things like pulling tarp, you know, and, and squeegeeing water off the field. But that team had a, a live cow as a mascot. And so <laughs> between innings every day, one of us had to go to the pen and take the cow and walk it around the field. So that was probably the 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 funniest, weird uh, duty of mine that year. Well, I thought the uh, the bat dogs in Trenton were an aggressive yep. uh, mascot. A live <laughs> cow. I've never, that one's a new one. Uh, how did you ultimately get your first job with a big league organization? So uh, that was the first year they were with the Cardinals, um, you know, met a bunch of good people there and uh, their media relations person had some connections to Nick Kral, who works here, obviously. Uh, Brian Manitti was someone he knew. So, you know, I, I got a couple of contacts, um, but it really just went back, sent out resumes again, went to the winter meetings. The next year I worked for the Red Sox as their Florida ops assistant. So that was, you know, doing everything in spring training. Um Mail, then you know for uh, the GCL and extended spring and instructional league, I was a little bit more the business manager, where helped with flights, helped with per diems, helped with hotel rooming lists and stuff. And so that was that was really good seeing the low level player development organizational side of things. Um, and then the next year, I uh, got an internship with the Brewers in their video advanced scouting department. And so though that that was back when. The video didn't get fed in directly. We had to clip it off of, I think it was DVDs. There were some VHS even back then. And so, you know, that was great because you're in a room, you watch at least two games a day, every day. You're clipping video, you're seeing pictures. By the end of the year, we were helping put the advance report together, little documents for the coaches and that sort of thing. And so that was the first year that I was in the front office with the home city. So you were, at, you were in Milwaukee, you were with the big league club. Yep. What was it like being around I me mean, after a couple of years? New Jersey Cardinals, Fort Myers. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be around the big league club and actually have interaction with the coaches and, and get that first taste of that life? It was great. We didn't interact much with the coaches, but, you know, with, with the members of the front office, um, you know, I remember, I think we got to be in the draft for the first round pick in the room. So, yeah, it was great. Um, you know, I know people have had way more than, than two years of trying to get in, but, you know, even those two years you see, how much you have to do. And more than that, it, I worked with a great, great group of people there. And so just learning about learning about baseball and like what people are looking for and hitter swings and pitchers deliveries and, and pitch movement, that sort of thing is, you know, you don't get a year where you just get to watch 300 baseball games, 400 baseball games straight through with other people that know a, a lot about baseball. And so that was the best learning experience there. You joined the Reds 2007 as a baseball operations assistant. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty wide ranging job title. Uh, what were your first, what were your initial duties as you first came to Cincinnati? Yeah, I was actually brought over most likely to be on an internship to do a lot of the same things that I had done for the Brewers the year before, 
I did work in the video room some and continued doing some some of the charting and advance report work. Um, pretty quickly, for whatever reason, I, I got pulled in. I think it was the second year of the new ownership group. So Dick Williams and Bob Miller, who were the assistant GM at the time, they needed assistance on more of the budget and financial side on baseball ops. Um, I think they had brought a new CFO in. And so just supporting that efforts, so that's really where a lot of my uh, first full-time work went to. Um, and then Nick was really doing a lot of the uh, statistical work at, at that point. And so over time, especially being involved in the advanced report as well, the advanced scouting, um, that's where a lot of the statistical side of things kind of started to evolve. Given your math background, you being interested in statistical analysis is not all that much of a mm -hmm. surprise. Was the move into the analytical and research side of it sort of a natural evolution for you? Yeah, it was. It was pretty organic. So, you know, when I got there, um, Wayne Christie was the GM and then Walt took over pretty soon after that. And, um, you know, it was it was really organic between everyone, Nick, Dick, Bob, Walt, where I really, you know, once I got access to our data and what was coming in, I was doing a lot of work just on my own at home when I had time. And so it really just evolved over time where we became, we started to make things more and more formalized. You know, I keep going back to the advanced scouting, but we automated a lot, a lot of those processes. We started to, you know, redevelop some things that the previous uh, regime with the Reds had done some, some really good work on, but had, you know, kind of gotten stagnated a little bit. And so really picking up a lot of efforts on the statistical side that that we thought we wanted to get to at that point. So now doing a lot of that, <clears throat> excuse me, that work at home, was that more just out of your interest for it? Or was that, I think I can do some stuff here to show them that this is where I belong? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't think I was actively doing it to try to prove to anyone that I could do it. Um, it was probably more out of, out of curiosity and honestly just fun. Cause I, you know, I, it, it was like, the first time ever I, you know, had access to all of the baseball statistics I had. That was just kind of what I did when I had free time. And so um, I think it was, it, I don't think there was like a, uh, an end game of trying to get it integrated. It was more just, I had access to the data and, and it was really fun and interesting. And then, you know, it just became part of the conversation more and more. This time is probably three or so years after Moneyball came out. Uh, do you remember reading it and did it have any impact on you in terms of the way you thought about baseball? Mm -hmm. I, I did read the book. I would say it was more of the baseball prospectus and the old, uh, there was an old blog, I think baseball think factory is what it was called. And so it was really more reading, um, what was out there from baseball perspectives. I don't remember when hardball times started, but that's really when I remember I still had, that's when I was still at my first job. And that sort of really interesting analysis in the books Prospectus was putting out was coming out there. And then you started to hear about maybe one or two people starting to get jobs in that in that realm. It was more that than Moneyball itself, you know, um, just picking up on everything that was out there in terms of the, the really interesting, good baseball research websites that were popping up on the Internet. Um, that's really where I started to see that that you could bring those two sides together. You moved on to full-time to the statistical analysis research area, manager of the department, senior director, senior director. But even as these titles were becoming more impressive, you were basically a one-man show, right? Is that you were basically, you were basically the analytics department? Um, 
there were times yes and times no. Um, we we had really talented interns for a while. One uh, we did hire and and helped out a bunch before they moved on. Um, we actually got in relatively early. I feel like on the uh, you know having someone dedicated to baseball that was setting up the databases themselves, the systems of it. Um, and we also had a couple of really good consultants over the years in terms of helping with the data systems, um, developing internal websites and that sort of thing. So I was kind of the constant all the way through. Um, but we, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it was just me. We, we did have a lot of good people involved along the way. Getting in early as a club, though, uh, there wasn't necessarily a roadmap there, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so, you know, the teams that caught on later, there were other examples they could use. You hire somebody from this organization who had seen mm -hmm. this or that. Without that roadmap, was there a bit of freedom of sort of being able to develop some of the, uh, you know, the database and just sort of the way you guys operated mm -hmm. in general? Uh, probably. And I don't want to make it sound like we were ahead of the curve. No, 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 of course. Means because, you know, we were. But when we were this probably. was all going on, this was not a 30 club league wide thing yep. the way it is now. Yep. That's probably true. Um, I would say a lot of it honestly was from all the great public research that was out there. You know, um, I remember there was a couple really, really interesting Harville Times articles out there just about, you know, true talent and, you know, how you regress to the mean and things like that. I hope I'm not getting too nerdy for no, the podcast no, no. here. So, um, Trust me, we've had some really nerdy conversations <laughs> on this podcast. Um, so a combination of that, um, we always really, really tried to not, tried to make things applicable to the field. Like we always really tried to keep it where, we could explain something to the scouts or to the major league coaching staff. Um, that number one. And then number two, trying to avoid just making up statistics for the sake of it, you know, trying to have things that, that related directly to, to the field was kind of, I'd say those two things were sort of what, what drove our processes early on. You mentioned Walt Jockety before you worked for him for several years. What was the biggest thing you learned from him? Um, so I think what Walt was really, really, really good at was, taking all the information in together. You know, he would never make a decision without talking to every scout that had seen the player, talking to us in the office, thinking about the financials of the contract, thinking about the medical side of things. Um, and so, you know, I feel like the the deals that we made, you know, whether they were signings like Araldus Chapman or some of the trades, um, you know, like bringing in someone like Chu or Matt Latos, um, they were the ones where, he took a lot of time to do the research and really bring it all together. And, you know, I'm sure there are a bunch of moves that I didn't know about at the time that we didn't do because, you know, one of the boxes wasn't checked. So really that diligence to to thinking about all the facets before making a decision. In 2015, you were on a Sabre panel and you said you don't separate stats and scouting on the amateur level. Um, given how impactful analytics have become at the big league level and in the minors, how challenging is it to evaluate amateurs without some of those same tools? Um, so I think if I could try to put emphasis on what I had said, I don't know if that's allowed, but um, sure. it's really the not separating, you know, trying to say that exactly what I was just saying about how Walt operated, that we really always try to bring everything together and not keep them separate. And so, you know, it's amazing more often than not, when you're talking about a player, you'll have disagreements about them, but way more often than not, you're going to see the same things from one side as you do the other. And so it's even in the long term where, you know, you remember a long time ago, 
people were saying defense doesn't matter. And then once we got data that was good enough to measure it, lo and behold, defense matters again. Right. And so whatever the next thing is, you know, it's always that even if things are converging and diverging over time, um, that's what I was saying before. It's really about trying to represent what's happening on the field and how talented these players are. And so, um, you know, that's that's the important thing for us, I think, on the pro and amateur side. On the amateur side, though, you're you're it's impossible to evaluate amateur players the way you evaluate pro players because the tools aren't necessarily there. You're not going to have TrackMan in every high school or mm-hmm. you're not going to have, uh, you know, the same data available to you. Yep. So does that make it more challenging? I know you're not necessarily on the amateur side of scouting, but like as an organization and just as an industry, is it tougher to evaluate players on the amateur level without those tools that you are so accustomed to using? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if it's tougher or easier um, because at the end of the day, you're really competing against the other 30 teams. And so where it's the same in both is that you're trying to find those edges of where you can you can have better information and then just trust the decision-making process. And so, you know, we're not, when you're looking at an amateur player, it's not like you're disappointed that you don't have trackman data on every game he's pitched. Um, it's really, I think, just about dealing or, you know, using what what information is there and making the best decisions you can. I've always said, whenever I've had amateur scouting directors on this podcast, I've always said, to me, that's the hardest job in baseball because you're trying to evaluate a 17-year-old kid. You may see him five times. If he has five bad days, you're going to think he's one thing. And then in reality, he may be a completely different thing. I don't, yep. Not to mention the amount of ground you have to cover. Amateur scouting to me is is an area where I give more credit to those guys and gals who do that job yep. than anything else in baseball because I just think it's the hardest thing to do. Well, and then even one step further, think about on the international side, having to make a decision on a 16-year-old, <laughs> right. right? And then how much development time it is between that and the big leaguers. That's that's the really mind-blowing part. Right. Of if you have well. a 16-year-old who's already 6'4", 250, then you have an idea of what kind of... Yep. You know, some of these kids don't grow until they're yep. 18 or so. Yeah, that's yep. the amateur game in general is is astounding to me. That said, from 2004 to 2010, the Reds first pick first first picks in the first round included Homer Bailey, Jay Bruce, Drew Stubbs, Devin Messeraco, Yonder Alonso, Mike Leake, and Yasmani Grandal. And you had Todd Frazier in a sandwich round. Uh, you were the only team during that stretch to have every one of your first round guys get to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you guys as a front office when you have that sort of of run? Because, I mean, I think the stats are probably about 50% of first-rounders never get to the big mm-hmm. leagues. Yeah. I mean, it, it was exciting while it was happening, and that obviously, you know, led to our best window of success coming up. Um, but, you know, it just shows you how much of a cat-and-mouse game it is. That that was a long time ago now, you know, the end of that being 2010. And so, you know, everyone's always evolving and getting better, and, you know, you know, we're hopeful that a lot of our recent picks are going to be right there. But, um, you know, it's one of those where it's exciting more because you've built from within and that's the core of your organization. And when you're winning and it's players that came up through the system, that's the gratifying part of it. Um, not not the streaks or the players itself, just the building that core from within. You know, those are those are the best, most exciting teams, I think. As analytics became more prevalent in the game. For a lot of years, there was a scouts versus stats debate within the industry. From everything I've read about this organization, that clash never seemed to happen in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. What made your organization different that 
it seemed like everybody sort of meshed from the beginning. Um, you know, I would say, you know, it's a credit to, to Walt, to Chris Buckley, to Nick, you know, it was people that had, had had a hand in, in a lot of different aspects of it. Walt was a farm director and I think scouting director at the same time for Oakland, even, um, you know, Nick, Nick did everything. Dick came in from outside of baseball. Bob Miller had worked for, um, you know, minor league baseball and, and the Diamondbacks when they had a good run. And so I think it was that, that a lot of our people had, had worked in a bunch of different aspects of it. And like I was saying before, maybe it was just that we kind of lucked into it, but we really were trying to, um, to not develop statistics for the sake of developing statistics and, and really represent what was happening on the field. And so, um, you know, everyone, maybe it was just organic, but everyone did a really good job of always talking about the importance of being able to communicate our ideas and not just being over in the corner. And so I think it was that more than anything. There's so much data out there these days from StatCast, teams of proprietary information. In your role and, and just in general in this industry, what's the biggest challenge in culling through all of that information and trying to determine what matters most? Yep. Uh, I'd say it's it's probably like prioritizing what you want to do. And, you know, I'll be honest that, you know, have to give credit to our analytics and, and system staff, how it's, it's unbelievable how much they're doing and what their depth and breadth of knowledge is, which is so far beyond what what I have, what, you know, I had when I came in. And so um, it, it's really just um, focusing on, I guess, what what we think has the most impact at the time and uh, diving in there. So, um, you know, I think it's really just staying organized and trying to be out in front of things, um, but balancing the R&D aspects and the sort of doing the day-to-day, year-to-year work. Um, it's definitely a challenge. About five years ago, you said it might be the hardest time ever to be a hitter because of all the information that's available to teams in terms of shifts and things like that. Is that still the case, do you think? Has that evolved or or is it still, because of all the information that's out there, is it as hard to hit as it's ever been? It probably isn't. It, it might even be getting harder, you know, just how hard pitchers throw, everything they know about the opposing hitter, everything that people know how to do, how to manipulate the ball and make it move in certain ways now. Um, you know, I, I, I guess that maybe is part of why people have leaned into, you know, swinging and missing more focusing on, on squaring the ball and driving it. And, um, it's always evolving, you know, so, um, hitters, you know, have caught up and figured out how to hit more home runs. I bet pitchers and defenses react next. So, you know, it's really, that's one of the interesting things about all this is seeing how the next evolution comes. You said that pitch framing is just part of the equation that you use to evaluate catchers, their ability to call a game, the way they interact with pitchers are also very big parts of the way you do it. Is that the toughest position in the game to assess because of everything that goes into catching? Um, I kind of think they're all tough to assess. You know, I, I feel like we never feel like we have a handle on everything that players are doing on the field at all times. You know, with, with StatCast, it just opened up how much was available to look into and to analyze. And so there's always a component of everyone's, every position's game, you know, whether it's, just randomly like uh, first baseman picking throws or, um, you know, the shortstop being a leader for the infield. Um, it really could be, could be anything. You know, I think 
it's probably just something we have in the back of our minds that that everyone's trying to work on and that you're never all the way there. When you think back to when you started on the analytics side of things, mm-hmm. did you ever think you'd see the day where fans were talking about things like exit velocity and launch angle as much as they talk about home runs and RBIs? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if I ever thought about it directly, but um, I think if you would have asked me then, like, do fans like interesting statistics that I keep going back to this, but that actually describe the game for what it is. I think fans have always liked that, you know? And so it took a while, but you know, like there's nothing wrong with RBIs, but people understand the context of it now, or, you know, pitchers wins, you know, I'm not one of those people that feels like we need to like throw it out the window. You're not a Brian Kenny kill the wind guy. No, no, no. Because people understand it now, right? That's, that's what's important about it is you can, enjoy any statistics on any level you want if it helps you understand and enjoy the game. That's that's my take on it. I remember when I was covering the Yankees, we're probably talking seven, eight years ago, Brian Cashman would occasionally come out with some, well, this guy's exit velo is blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And we all sort of looked at him like, okay, but we don't know what that means. Yep. So you could tell me this exit velo is 115 miles an hour, but I don't know how that compares. I think the, you know, the availability via StatCast for this to become a more yep. widely has probably helped uh, people in your job, certainly, but I think it's probably helped fans understand a lot more about the game as well. I think so, too. And it, not to get off on a tangent, but it's not just baseball. You know, the NBA is doing some really neat stuff. I know soccer has for a long time. So it's it's really just having that information available for sports fans in general. Um, it, it just leads to more understanding and people can get into whatever angles of it they want. I think one area that has not been as publicly accepted is the wrong word, but understood maybe are defensive metrics. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you stand on those in terms of, you know, how they effectively measure uh, players defense? And, and do you think there's still, uh, you know, substantial room for those to grow? Well, there's always room for them to grow. I think, I think stack has coming out really unlocked everything in the sense that what we all knew was the limitation all along was that we didn't have great data on where players started. And so now at its most simplest, you know, it's where did a guy start? Where did he have to get to? How long did he have? And what's the plus minus of him versus average fielders? And so I think that's a pretty good, pretty intuitive way to look at fielders and compare them. And so I do feel like we've, once StackCast came along, it did get us to the point where we had what we needed to represent what everyone has seen all along with fielders. And so I actually feel like not that it's not going to keep getting better, but it's gotten to the point where you can trust what's out there because you know how fast the guy was running. You know, you know, the distances and the, the math that it would have taken to catch balls. And so it's both descriptive and pretty intuitive. And I think that's that's what's exciting about the step we've gotten to now. Is that harder with infielders? Um, you're also getting there. I mean, there's more angles and stuff, but, you know, with the outfield, maybe the park they're playing in matters more. So right. there's challenges on, on both sides of it. Um, what do you think will be the next frontier that clubs try to use to gain a competitive advantage? Uh, legally or illegally? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. No, uh, I you know, the thing we've talked about for a long time, I think it's one of two things. One is kind of just the whole concept of the mental side of the game and whether you want to call it chemistry or makeup or feel or whatever, you know, that that's one. And then the other would just be continuing to get better and better about 
uh, injury prevention, you know, and, and the performance of players. So, you know, I guess that all kind of envelops into one concept of just getting, getting the most out of every player every day. You, uh, you've mentioned Dick and Nick a few times during this interview. You guys have worked together for a long time. What are the biggest benefits to that kind of continuity within a front office? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's amazing how long we've stayed together. And that's a credit to to Bob Castellini and the ownership group here for, for trusting us for this long and letting us grow together. But um, there's something about it, Ohio that brings this stability, right? The Indians yeah. have the same thing. Those I, guys have been there forever. I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say that um, that we feel like we can we can always talk to each other about anything. You know, there's really no nothing's off limits. And, um, you know, I, I'd say that's the main thing. Um, we're not going to go home and, you know, go to a movie, the three of us every night or anything. But we have a great relationship. Um, you know, we all know each other's families. We've seen each other's kids grow up. And so it, it it's really just that having been together that long, knowing that we can have any conversation we need to. In December of 2018, you guys made a huge trade with the Dodgers. Yasiel Puig, Matt Kemp, Alex Wood. Uh, You also acquired Sonny Gray from the Yankees that winter. At deadline, you traded for Trevor Bauer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was there a sense in in those six, seven months leading into that season and in that season uh, in 2019 that you guys were getting close to contending and getting where you wanted to after four pretty tough years? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, and obviously we we made some more of the win now moves starting then. It was, and you know, we we had kind of worked through, you know, some of the some of the roster uh, concepts and and contracts that had been on the books for a couple of years, and so then it was the time where we had the young guys coming up, starting to contribute to the major league team, and yeah, focusing on filling the rest of those holes. Um, you know, it didn't go exactly as planned last year in terms of the one loss record. But um, we, we felt like either way, that was a building block to this year as well. And so, yeah, it was definitely um, a, a fun change from the, I guess, the 17 winter to the 18 winter to to try to to finally make that turn again. Do, do you think mid-market teams need to take more chances on the trade market, given that you guys can't go out and sign Garrett Cole for $324 million? It depends. I mean, I think it, at its most basic, it, it always comes back to to building and developing from within, and you know, and that's what gives you the ability to make a you know a trade if if the winner turns out that way, and you know the the free agent market isn't going the way that it is. So you know, it's really building that base and having that consistent pipeline where you know if you move somebody, that person usually is a good player. You know, you're not going to make trades of people that just flame out every time. And so it's really about being to make those trades, continue uh, your sustainability and continue to bring young players up that can contribute to the team. What is the trade deadline like for you? I know fans love it. There's a lot of rumors, there's a lot of talk. Media, I don't know if I love it, but it's certainly a busy time for us. Uh, you guys are, are focused all the time on on building your team and, and looking ahead to the future. But that two to three week window, mid to late July, what are those weeks like for you? Yep. Yeah, I think it really starts after the draft. You, you decompress for a week or two in the middle of June. And then, you know, it's really, I mean, the, the analytics work is going on the whole year, but really having had the scouts out and seeing players the whole first half of the season, we usually get together right in early July. And so that's when it starts, you know, laying out the board, thinking about where we are, you know, in our cycle, what we need to accomplish. Um, 
identifying, buying and selling, and then really fanning out, talking to teams and um, just seeing how it evolves. But, you know, it all the action picks up the last week, but it's really the entire month and even more leading into it. And so that's really the fun part is is the prep of, you know, seeing who might be available, having guys come up, up on and off the board. Um, and really the whole process of the month is, is the fun part. You follow all the rumors like everybody else? Um, I mean, you almost have to at this point and, you know, take with a grain of salt, which ones are accurate and not. Um, I, I can't say I'm on the internet all day, but, you know, everyone hears things and knows things. And so it it's kind of a part of it. Um, but just being being able to figure out as quickly as possible which which things have legs and which don't. You guys must get a chuckle at times about things that are out there about your team because you know what's true and what's yep. not, right? Yeah. It is what it is. You know, it, it's definitely more of a chuckle than something that you get mad or annoyed about. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's part of the business, I'd say. We mentioned free agency before. You guys made a couple of big splashes this past winter, signing Nick Castellanos, Mike Moustakas to $64 million deals. Uh, some of your players came into camp and said, there was a little bit of a different feeling mm-hmm. knowing that you guys had talked about spending money and you went out and you did it. Yep. Uh, what, I guess, was there a different feeling coming in? And, and as a front office, does that also lead to different expectations? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you talked about last off season. I, I think uh, last off season, a lot of what we did allowed us to be able to do that this off season as well. And so, yeah, we didn't know how the winter was going to go, but we'd identified some players that, we wanted to bring in impact bats and impact talent. And then more importantly, people that had come from winning environments that we knew, you know, were great teammates and were going to be a part of the culture we're trying to build. And so I think that's where we were excited about the potential for the feeling when we got out here. And I think it's happening. You know, you still have to go out there and win the games once the season starts, but um, it's been pretty exciting so far. We also talked before about the need to take risks when you're a mid-market team. Mm-hmm. The idea of signing Mike Moussakis, who's basically been a third baseman his whole career, yep. to play second base. Um, is that the kind of move that a team like yours has to get creative with? If you're trying to bring an impact bat, he's an impact bat, but you have a third baseman. How much thinking goes into something like that in terms of, do we know this is going to work? Do we think this is going to work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. the I'd say we try to keep ourselves open to creativity a lot. Um, but again, you know, we we dug into the numbers on it. You know, we had scouts see him play. You know, we wouldn't have made the move if we didn't feel some level of comfort of that it uh, had a chance to happen. And not just that, but, you know, talking to people around the game that had seen him as well. Um, so, yeah, I we don't want to take risks just for the sake of risk taking. But when it's something that helps us put puzzle pieces together in a, in a productive way, I think that's when we're more willing to push the envelope a little bit. One of the parts of your job recently also included the design and construction of your player development complex in Arizona, uh, the renovation of your Dominican Academy. That doesn't seem like something that would fall on the uh, skill set necessarily in terms of a math major who's a, an analytics expert. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, and sadly, it wasn't that recently. We've been out here since 2010, so that was a long time ago now. Um you know, I think it was going back to that I was always involved in the budgets on the baseball side. And so um, maybe not as much of, you know, we're going to put this carpet here and this mirror here. But um, really the 
overseeing the process. Um, it was interesting. It was definitely nothing I'd ever done before or thought I would. And, um, you know, having it, we, we also got a ton of help from the Indians. They had built theirs a year before. And so, you know, they were great in terms of providing us resources of what they'd done that had worked and hadn't. Um, but that was a great process because you end up seeing the finished product and now we're here and it's year 10 or something and everyone is still happy with it, except we're, we're trying to know if we need to expand now, which is crazy. But um, yeah, that was just a, a, a different thing. You know, it's always something different here. And so just another one of those that that was pretty fun at the end of the day. What's your favorite part of your job? Um, I still think it's, it's, you know, getting to be around the baseball and everything, you know, it's probably less and less every year that I'm doing the actual analytical work and everything, but you know, this is going to sound a little cliched, but, um, not taking for granted that we're actually working for a team and, you know, getting to, getting to go and watch a game every night. And so that's the other part of it is, um, watching a game and caring if you win and lose, not because you're a fan, but because we're trying to build something and we're trying to get back to where we were before. I think that's the most exciting part. What's your least favorite part of your job? Um, <laughs> there has to be one. <laughs> uh, I guess I would say it's amazing how little baseball I do some days, you know, and it, how much of the job, this isn't a least favorite part, but more of a surprising where it's really a lot like any other job where, you know, you're, you're dealing with, financial aspects you're dealing with uh you know whatever things come up every day um so that's not a least favorite because i do enjoy being involved in all that but i'd say the most surprisingly different part is that some days there's 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 almost no baseball going on so i noticed you've had a twitter account since 2012 you have never tweeted anything uh are you ever tempted to share your thoughts with the world no and i i've zero percent temptation to, to ever tweet anything. <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I fully acknowledge how influential it is. And, you know, it really is the quickest source of information now. And so I, I'm not on there a lot, but, um, you know, I do have the account so I can go in there and, and search if I need to and that sort of thing. But, you know, no one, no one needs to worry about the SD Grow account exploding anytime soon, getting getting a million users or anything. Well, like you just that. gave it a plug. So you may get some more followers off of this. You never know. Uh, some people view you as being on the track to becoming a GM someday. Is that an important goal for you? Um, I, it's really not for me. Um, I, I love being part of this organization. And um, the important thing for us is, is getting back to where we were, you know, in the early 2010s. So um, whatever happens, happens. And honestly, I don't envy some of the responsibilities that role has in terms of, you know, being out in public and everything. And so, um, if it happens, it happens, but that's going to be a testament to what we built here at the organization. It's nothing about me as an individual. You've been with the Reds for a long time now. It's been 30 years since they won a World Series. What would it mean to bring that trophy back to Cincinnati? Oh, I mean, it would. It, it's almost indescribable. It would just be the culmination of everything we've worked for, um, the business side that's done such an amazing job, you know, generating fan interest the whole time. Um, the ownership group and the city itself. So not to, you know, again, sound cliche, but we mean it like it, it it's, there's no way to describe it. It would, it would be unbelievable. Sam, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Many thanks to Sam Grossman for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, 
I'll be joined by Royals Vice President and Assistant GM of Major League and International Operations, Renee Francisco. We'll discuss the world of international scouting, Kansas City's 2015 World Series run, how the Royals nearly landed Juan Soto, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. Stay safe, everybody. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.